I decided to book a trip to the Lower Valley and I was on my own and I went to visit one of my all-time favorite producers, which was Domaine Nouette. And I remember tasting the wines and uh, walking the vineyards. And I remember sitting in one of the most important vineyards, which is Claude Borg, as the sun was setting on my first day by myself, you know, and I was just like, I made this happen. And I remember sitting there in the vineyard, drinking the wine and just sobbing. I mean, it was just like one of those like things that uh, it was so emotional for me. I had never felt anything like that. I had never seen a place like that. Granted, it's not easy. France is not welcoming. If you don't speak French, you're no one. But to me, it was just such an epic experience to be by myself and make it happen that it made me realize that whatever I set, I will make happen. Welcome back to Surviving Hospitality. In today's episode, Elisa Lozano connects with Daniel Toral, our first wine professional. Through their conversation, Daniel describes his move to the United States from Venezuela, his hospitality experience in New York and Miami, and how he ultimately transitioned from a career in operations into a profession in the wine industry, an industry where he's not only had the opportunity to go around the world, but more importantly, have the ability to grow within a community he loves. Join us. So excited to welcome Danny Toral. I don't know what you go by these days. Is it Danny or Daniel? Everyone calls me Danny. Everyone that knows me calls me Danny. Everyone that's new calls me Daniel. Got it. So to me, you'll always be Danny, but I'm thrilled to have you on. Thank you so much for letting me convince you to be a guest on the Surviving (laughs) Hospitality podcast. I'm really excited to kind of share your story. As one of my very best friends, it's (laughs) really great to be able to spend some time with you. And especially because we're long distance, we get to just kind of chat and catch up a little bit. Great. So Danny is in wine sales for the Florida Wine Company and has been for a while, been in restaurants and in my opinion, an amazing wine talent. Oh, thanks. Um, I think that, you know, your palate is really impressive and amazing. And I know for a fact that I'm not the only one that thinks so. You're also really modest about that, which makes it so much cooler to kind of talk with you about wine. So aside from the wine, hopefully we can talk about your passion for the industry and kind of what your journey is. Okay, sounds fun. So let's start with what you're drinking. What are you having this evening? Well, drinking a sample, this is a a Pinot Noir from the region of Swabia in Germany from a producer called Rotterfaden. And it's a husband and wife making the wines 2018. It's really light and delicious Pinot Noir. Have you met this couple or is this I have not. what you know? No. It's a new, it's a, it's new in my book. And I've actually have only sampled little sips, but I haven't had a full glass. So I'm happy to enjoy this little glass awesome. as I talk to you. Hopefully it's well-deserved after a busy Friday. It was a busy, busy week. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it, it is a little bit busy this week. Um, seems kind of crazy. We're approaching the end of the year. Yeah, exactly. So let's get into it. I know you really, really well, but would love for our listeners to learn a little bit more about you. So backing up from where you are today, why don't you tell us a little bit about where you're from and what led you to hospitality? Well, um, originally from Venezuela, I moved to the States to learn how to cook. That was my original passion. When I was 18, I was lucky to go to the CIA in the Hudson Valley, and that's where I met you back in 2001. 
thinking I was going to be a chef and that was going to be my, my end game. I loved my experience there. I loved um, learning how to cook there and meeting all the people. And I actually just fell in love with wine while I was going to CIA. So that's what sort of like changed my life a little bit. But yeah, CIA was a great experience. It's hard to believe it was so long ago, for sure. Yeah, almost 20 years or 20 years, actually. Yeah, 20 years. Happy anniversary. (laughs) (laughs) So when you think about, you know, like you mentioned that it changed your life. I mean, that's a pretty profound statement. And especially for somebody that is just inspired enough and excited enough about food to want to commit their life to being a chef, move from your home country. So what about wine kind of? made you make that jump? Well, it took me a little bit to realize that uh, wine was my my true calling. But I mean, since I was a kid, I, I remember being in third grade and just drawing myself as a chef. And I really thought that wine, I mean, food was going to be my career and my path. I loved cooking with my grandma. I loved cooking all the time. My parents always hosted parties. It was is what I thought it, I wanted. But after... I guess taking that class at CIA, I realized how much my retention and my interest in geography and culture and wine, and it was just more than just cooking. It was more than just chopping vegetables or making sauces or roasting. It was more of an attraction for learning more about culture um, and how food and wine sort of interacted and how people really made decisions over time to create a specific style to the region. So that's what really attracted me to wine. And I thought that it was going to be hard for me to get into wine. So it took me a few years to realize that there's a room for everyone. It's not just for a certain specific person, that the wine world is varied and it's it's welcoming sometimes. But yeah, so it took me a few years to realize that that's what I really wanted. That's awesome. So, you know, you mentioned the, the wine class that you took. Mm-hmm. So many countries, so many varietals. Mm-hmm. So many allocations, so many <laughs> certifications. Did you know right away when you first started to study wine that there was a specific style, region, or country that you gravitated towards? No. At the beginning, I thought, uh, well, the, the world is too large to sort of dissect in, in that class. I mean, it was three weeks. I mean, I, I actually went through the, the notes recently because I was packing or whatever and was looking over the wines that we got to taste 20 years ago. Yeah. And those are wines that I think till this day are considered classics. I'll be happy to open a bottle and drink them. I think that the selection of wines that we were offered back then were fantastic. And so that really opened my horizons on, on what was out there. I did not gravitate to anything originally. Of course, there's a, I, I believe there's a cycle in wine consumption. And you sort of like start with the easier things to understand. And aromatic whites usually tend to, to be a first sort of step to get into wine. So anything that had some sort of like flowery notes or very specific aroma. So like drinking Sancerre, drinking Riesling from Alsace, drinking Gewürztraminer, things that are very expressive that are easy to sort of taste and sort of understand as a base. Um, That's what I was gravitating to. And then you kind of go and sort of start looking for things that are less obvious. I mean, it's taken me a while to realize exactly what I want. And I'm sure 10 years from now, I'll be drinking something completely different than what I'm drinking now. But there is a cycle and it, it, it reinvents itself every certain amount of years. 
That's my experience too. I think the last time that I visited, I was like, what's your favorite wine these days? And you rolled your eyes with some major, some major emphasis. And it's like, no, I mean, like, what is your go-to today? And I think you're right. You know, you definitely kind of, you know, go through a cycle and then return and revisit, et cetera. Yes. Yeah. It's always an exploration and you always revisit things that you probably drank before and reinforces what you like and what you don't like. Like, I would never touch a uh, Viognier anymore. Like, and I thought that that was a cool wine to drink back 20 years ago. Sure. So that's, that's one. It's interesting how we all do that for sure. Mm-hmm. So you graduated from the CIA. Yes. And then decided to, I mean, I know this about you, so I'll fill in the blank that you moved to the city for a bit after mm-hmm. the CIA working in kitchens. Um, tell me about, you know, kind of what that experience was like for you and then where you went from there. So it was really eye-opening. I mean, this must have been 2003. There were a lot of really great restaurants coming up in New York City. The dining scene is not what it is or what we what we see now. It was there were stuffy kitchens, there were casual kitchens. It was it was wild. And looking for jobs straight out of culinary school was extremely hard. I feel like I was not lucky finding a good job. I did experience one kitchen for the longest, I guess. And it was working with a famous chef. At that point, I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know what he was famous for. And the style of dining that or the style of cooking that he was doing was something that I wasn't familiar with. It was a little more on the California style, just very ingredient driven. I wanted to get into fine dining more than anything else. So for me, it was hard to understand what he was trying to do while I was trying to do something different. And, and who were you working for at the time? For Jonathan Waxman. Okay. Yeah. And the restaurant was? The restaurant was called uh, Washington Park, which has been closed for many months. Throwback, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that place went to be one of the cooler wine places. And it has a really the long cellar history. was pretty killer, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and when I was there, I mean... I guess the team of sommeliers that were working there were really still, till this day, they're important in New York City. But I got to see things that I had never seen before. I mean, that cellar was insane. Of course, I didn't understand anything that was going on. And what was tough for me was I was called to work every day at 9.30 in the morning to prep for lunch, work the lunch shift, do family meal, prep for dinner, work dinner, and close dessert. So I would be done cooking at 11.30 at night every day. And then I would have to go home, sleep for a little bit, and come back the next day and do it again. Mm-hmm. Five to six days a week. So for a pay that was just pennies. I mean, it was not... remember nothing. what you were making? I think, I think it was $450 a week. Yeah. Which is... Gross. Insane. Yes. Gross <laughs> is an understatement. I mean... No, I mean gross, not net. <laughs> <laughs> yes exactly after that like all the taxes were exactly. were taken away I mean I was making shit yeah. I'm sorry I don't know if I can no cur- no cur- it's okay yeah I um, mean it was I mean we're not alone there were many 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 of yeah. I mean it was rough and I remember just having no life being miserable it was my first winter in New York City and it was it was rough I remember really having rough. a great time <laughs> <laughs> I mean, luckily, we were able to find a good job afterwards. I mean, it took me a little bit to find something that I really liked. It's true. So tell me about where you went to once you left Washington Park. 
So uh, Washington Park actually closed while I was working there. So it, it's not that I had an option. It was just the restaurant was done and I needed to find a new place. And so that's when I joined Per Se and we got to work together and sort of opened that restaurant. And I was there for the first like eight or nine months of the restaurant, which was great. That was super fun, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, talk about long hours, but we were getting paid really well for those long hours. Oh, for sure. And it was it was worth every moment of yes. education, excitement, and yes. experience for sure. Yes. I mean, I remember things from that restaurant that I, I mean, I still remember the amount of plates, the names of the plates, the excitement that everyone was on point. Everyone wanted to learn. Everyone was there to work hard and to to really make an effort to make an impression. It was a really great working environment. Yeah, um, it was a really amazing experience. Mm-hmm. So you were there for, was it six months? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, it was, I guess I started there in February all the way to maybe September. Okay. I don't know how long that was, but that was enough. I mean, it was, <laughs> I wish I would have stayed longer, but it was good. It was enough. I had, a, I had I, it was enough. I mean, I decided to move to Miami and finish school. And I think that was a good, a good call on my, on my part. So night and day from New York to Miami. Oh, of course. I mean, and you were a student, no less, but mm-hmm. tell me a little bit about, you know, just the difference in culture and what you experienced in restaurants, just kind of going from one fishbowl to another. Yeah, I mean, the fishbowls were completely different sized. And I was in a place that the dining scene was really not exciting at all. There was nothing happening in Miami back then. Maybe two or three restaurants that had been established for years. And there was really, it was the beginning of a change, but it was, it was adulterance. There was nothing. So for me, coming from a super professional, really exciting dining scene to something that was just like, it was just nothing. It was a challenge. It took me a little bit to sort of understand what was going on and embrace it. It's also at a completely different pace. Miami is a tropical city. I mean, everyone works at their own pace. It's really slow. No one shows up for to work. It's just a really relaxed environment. No one wants to learn. No one cares. There's no, there wasn't any excitement about ingredients. There was no farms. There was, it was just really, really, it's a really bad timing in, in the culinary scene in Miami. But I was going to school and I was working full time and that's how I was able to get ahead. And I worked in restaurants for a couple, maybe another year or so before I was able to get a sommelier position. So tell me about your first SOM position in a place where, you know, if I visited you in many of the places that you've worked, but I feel like for people that are really pursuing a career in wine, mm-hmm. jump from, let's call it serving to SOM is a really huge deal because those positions are few and far between. And it's complicated and it's, you know, there are politics in any industry slash restaurant. So tell me about that jump for you. So, well, I went from serving to getting a position as a sommelier. I mean, I had a basic knowledge on wine when I started. I, I mean, I understood a little bit of the, the regions and, and history behind it. I did, I did not know producers. I had never sold wine before. And basically the chef was inspired by my story. And he basically thought that I was a rock star just because I had worked with Percy. And so that's why they gave me a chance. Wow. Because he said, like, maybe you've worked in that environment. Maybe you will succeed just because you have the passion to, to learn. And he was right. I mean, I, I'm definitely hungry and eager to learn. 
and I would come home every day and study and learn and drink wine and taste. And I was working with uh, the sommelier, the head sommelier of the place that I, uh, took a little bit of time to sort of like hold my hand and show me a few things that sort of helped me move forward. And I was there for two years and I, I started as a assistant some and I ended up becoming the sommelier of the place within two years. So that was a great opportunity for me. But it was a restaurant that was insane. I mean, I think they had spent $25 million building this place. It was like a multi-experience. I mean, there was a lounge, there was a club, there was a restaurant. It was everyone that was in the kitchen had worked somewhere in Spain. It was just one of those places. Is it still open? No, that place, of course. What what was the name of it? (laughs) It was called Karu and Y. It was located in like an up-and-coming neighborhood that it's been, I mean, it closed in maybe 2007. Mm-hmm. and they were calling it up and coming in 2007 it's uh 2021 it's not coming still <laughs> it, never, so, it never came <laughs> never came <laughs> that's interesting yeah and so you know I know that you've bounced around you know from place to place and you know our careers were parallel because mm-hmm. you know I was here kind of you know moving up the ranks and you were doing the same but I took the path of service, you took the path of wine. One of the things that has always been really impressive to me is people that I'm close to and that that I've worked with, like you, that are able to really just kind of focus, double down and put the passion and commitment into studying. So you've done quite a bit of that on the formal level. Tell me a little bit about that and preparing for tests and... So through with those things. So I think I was still a server when I decided to take the, I mean, I, back then I didn't know exactly what the options were. I thought quartermaster sommelier was the way to go just because uh, master sommelier sounded, I mean, we came from a institution that sort of valued the master chef and the master baker. And, and so I figured that the master sommelier would be the equivalent to that. And if you looked at all the certifications that were available, I mean, there's still the Master of Wine and the WSET. I never thought the WSET was as serious as the Court of Master Sommelier was. And I thought that the Court of Master was also at a higher standard and it was more accepted, I guess. So I took my first certification when I was still a server and I was like, okay, well, I'll get certified. I'll take my two levels and then whatever, we'll see what happens. It did take me a while to to figure out that I wanted to continue through that path. And between certified and taking my advanced, I took seven years in between. Just thinking, I mean, I don't need this. I don't, I mean, this is not the path that I need to grow my career because I was growing my career professionally by just working really hard and studying on my own. And we had tasting groups and trips. And I mean, it was just, I was doing everything to get educated on my part. But then I saw a friend of mine that inspired me to just continue going forward because she's like, listen, if you don't do it, someone else is going to do it. You know, I mean, we're all we're all in the same level. So by studying really hard, and I mean, I, I just had a memory for everything, I guess. I had really, really good memory for, for wine, for producers, for vintages, for pricing, for distributors, for importers. I just, it just clicked really easy for me. So I went and, and took my advanced sommelier with the quartermaster sommeliers and on my first try I passed. There were people that were working at 11 Madison Park for years in the same course and they did not pass just because their their view of the wine world was so skewed to just very high end well i had seen a view of the wine world completely you know of course so yeah so i continued and i i mean i took the master sommelier exam a couple of times and then i realized after 
a few of those tries that it was just not worth for me specifically it was not worth dedicating my time to that and then of course there's been a few things with the court of masters nowadays that i just i don't want to say i feel embarrassed saying that i hold a title or an advanced sommelier pin or whatever you want certification with them i just don't find it relevant anymore i think depending on where you stand on certain issues in the world it's something that at one time at least in my conversations with a lot of people was held to be the end-all, be-all, and, you know, it was a sense of pride. Mm-hmm. And I do think that there's some room to grow with the organization itself to kind of get to a better place in today's world, you know? We've changed, mm-hmm. and I think that it's time for it to catch up a little bit. Yeah, exactly. They need a lot of work to do. And yeah. so that's why I just I decided to step away from, from everything and just do my own thing. Awesome. So you mentioned a little bit about your traveling, and we took different paths. So I became mom, and you <laughs> became world traveler. So I'm not gonna lie, I was a little jealous <laughs> single time I saw you on social media, but whatever. So tell me, what was the most amazing experience that you had? Or is there even a most amazing, you know, you've had the opportunity to travel all around the world and experience so many different styles and regions. What is the first thing that comes to mind when I ask you that question? Well, it's funny that you say that because I have been lucky, really lucky to be invited to many regions and I've been part of a lot of organizations and I have traveled a lot, but I feel like the most important life-changing experience that I had was the one trip that I did on my own before anyone else invited me. I decided to, I mean, I fell in love with the Loire Valley a long time ago and I remember tasting Chenin Blanc for the first time with age and I just like, I just couldn't understand it. And I was just like so enamored with it that I decided to go to the Loire Valley on my own. Before I turned 30, I decided to book a trip and visit all the places that I was going to, I wanted to go that no one was going to take me because no one's going to take you to the places that you actually want to see. Everyone's going to take you to a place that they want you to sell the wines, right? Sure. The wines that sell themselves, they're not going to take you, right? So I decided to book a trip to the Loire Valley and I was on my own and I went to visit one of my all-time favorite producers, which was Domaine Nouet. And I remember tasting the wines and walking the vineyards. And I remember sitting in one of the most important vineyards, which is Claude de Borg, as the sun was setting on my first day by myself, you know, and I was just like, I made this happen. And I remember sitting there in the vineyard drinking the wine and just sobbing. I mean, it was just like one of those like things that it was so emotional for me. I had never felt anything like that. I had never seen a place like that. Granted, it's not easy. France is not welcoming. If you don't speak French, you're no one. But to me, it was just such an epic experience to be by myself and make it happen. That it made me realize that whatever I set, I will make happen, you know? So I went to- You're not an emotional person either. So like, that's a big deal. I'm not an emotional person. And that, that was just very, I mean, it was very special to me. And I mean, I remember driving through Burgundy and, and multiple sellers closing their doors on my face, not showing for appointments that I had set up with importers, visiting Champagne. And I mean, it's tough. I mean, but that experience I would always cherish. And I think that made me realize so many things that about myself that helped me move forward in the career too. That's really amazing. And so, you know, along with the places you've visited, the wines you've tasted, the opportunities you've had to connect with different people, and whether it's putting a certain wine on your list because you met a winemaker that visited, et cetera, to just meeting people that you bond and connect with, you know, in the industry. Who would you say in your career 
are the most influential people that you've come across? In the wine world? I mean, I you know, it's easy to say like in the wine world, but I, I do think that, you know, when you talk about the people that influence you or mentor you or that you connect with, it's not always in your tight circle or in yeah, your exactly. industry. So you know, I think it could apply to anyone. It's hard to say that I had a mentor or it's a tough question just because I... I mean, aside from me, of course. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I've always admired you for, I mean, so, so many things. But I mean, it's, I feel like because I was in a place dominated by a huge, huge company, everyone had a motive to mentor you or to guide you that I realized early on that, yes, I needed to ask questions. And yes, I needed someone to sort of guide me a little bit. But I had to find everything on my own. It's really, I mean, that's really what it is. And I, I'm thankful for all the people that gave me the opportunity to, or gave me the opportunities that I had, like to hire me as a beverage director or because they trusted in my taste and my experience. But I don't think I have a mentor. I don't think I have anyone that actually guided me and told me do this way. So that said, I mean, I think that happens to a lot of talented people. I, you know, I definitely know many who share your story, just kind of not really feeling like there was any one person in particular that took them under their wing. Correct. I feel like I changed that though, because no one ever took the time to guide me or not. It's not holding my hand. It's just like at least directing or putting me in the right direction or opening my eyes are like showing me different options or whatever. No one did that for me. But I think that I was able to, to change that and at least help two people that till this day will call me for, a, for my mentorship or just like guidance and just something basic. I never had that opportunity. I never had anyone to, that I could call and ask questions, you know? Yeah, that's really awesome. Who inspires you, would you say? Who do you look to in the industry? Maybe you don't know them, but I know that you read a lot. I know that you're a super intelligent human and that, you know, you're definitely up with kind of, you know, industry trends across the country and the world, et cetera. So what comes to mind when you're looking for just inspiration that'll keep you on your toes? So I feel like I have looked, I mean, I'm always inspired by people who work really hard. And I have a couple of friends in the industry here that have worked really, really hard. And they've got in my head. I feel like they're always inspiring. Specifically, one of my friends that is currently running a really great program for retail, which is a, a different challenge. But just like the work ethic, I think that is what really inspired, inspires me. Someone with really strong work ethic, someone that really wants to continue learning and that's never settled and continues to push for more knowledge. I think that's that's inspiring to me. I don't think I have like a lot of people that I like look for. <laughs> Look up. It's really weird. <laughs> I mean, you know me, you know I am. <laughs> yeah, you wine people. You're you're definitely cut from the same cloth. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. We need you and we love you anyway. <laughs> so with all of the amazing experiences that you've had, and you know, I, I know you've definitely kind of built a home and a family and a name for yourself in the region that you live in, what is it that you're looking forward to most in your future? Looking forward to seeing the next phase of Miami. I mean, it's been home for 17 years. Excited to see what's coming up. The people that are sort of making the decisions nowadays, they come with a different sort of background and a different perception of the wine world. Some of the wines that we were, or that I was able to taste and to buy when I was coming up in the wine are just really 
the price are it's, it's just too expensive right now. So like all these new buyers are buying new things and experimenting with new regions. And I feel like that's exciting. I'm excited to see what happens next in Miami. I mean, yeah, for sure. There's mm-hmm. talk about full circle. Yeah, exactly. So we talked a little bit about, you know, when you first started to embark on this idea of wine and its vast possibilities, if you gravitated towards one particular region, would you say, I mean, you mentioned the Loire Valley, is that your favorite still? It's one of my favorites, not necessarily my ultimate wine region, but it is definitely on the top five regions that I like to drink. Definitely a Francophile, I'm not going to lie. I mean, it's it's not news. <laughs> mm-hmm. I love drinking Burgundy, especially white Burgundy. I love drinking Champagne, although with acid reflux nowadays, not as much. <laughs> <laughs> I do love drinking Italian reds, especially Northern Italian reds. I do have a strong passion for Hungarian whites, just because it's close to my bloodline, I guess. And mostly European drinking. Tell me a little bit more about the bloodline. You talked about (laughs) your heritage. Share with our listeners kind of what that means. I think it's really cool. (laughs) So so my family is definitely a mixed family. My grandparents moved to Venezuela in 1948 out of Hungary, uh, World War II survivors. My mom was born in Venezuela, but she, her first language was Hungarian. So definitely a strong Hungarian influence in my upbringing especially culturally with the food and, and just the way people are, I guess, very cold and it's to the point. Maybe that's why you can be so grumpy. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, I think that's other things. <laughs> but yeah, so I grew up in a Latin country uh, with a mixed family. My dad is Venezuelan. My mom is Hungarian. And I guess those cultures just really, the Hungarian was definitely stronger than the Venezuelan. But yeah, I learned how to cook Hungarian food. I learned how to, that's just my cultural background. I mean, even though I don't speak the language and Spanish is my first language and I consider myself Venezuelan. I think that I'm more inclined to the Hungarian roots than anything else. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like your sister feels the same way? I don't think so. Really? I feel like she feels the complete opposite. Yes. And I don't know why. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's really common with families that come from diverse backgrounds. We tend to gravitate towards different things just based on experiences, even between siblings. Yeah. No, she's definitely more of a, she feels more connected to the Venezuelan side for sure. Interesting. Mm -hmm. So I guess your story to me is really special. I think that for people coming up in wine and learning, making their way, and also just curious about wine in general and people in the industry. One of the things that comes up often with people when we chat here is some of the challenges that we experience that we don't really we don't really expect and we kind of stumble upon them. What would you say were your biggest challenges or maybe are still your biggest challenges in the industry? So I feel like the biggest challenge has always been myself. I feel like I have put myself, I have put all the barriers up. It's It hasn't been the industry. I feel like it's been myself. I think it's once I realized that I could do anything, I basically set myself to do anything. But the other barriers, of course, is finding the right place that's going to trust in you, that you're going to make the money and you're going to put together something that's unique and special and people are going to come. I mean, now labor is really challenging, but luckily I didn't get to see that. (laughs) (laughs) You jumped out of operations, I think, at a pretty good time. At the right time. (laughs) 
Do you miss service? I miss parts of service. My favorite part about, I guess, working with wine was receiving, which people hate. <laughs> I loved receiving cases and opening boxes and organizing and breaking down boxes. I feel like I still do that when I'm at home. It's like I get a rush that I, it's, it's weird. But I do like the service aspect. I, I do love the reaction that people get when the food and wine are a match, you know, opening something new for someone, getting someone excited about something that they've never had. Those are things that are, I still miss. I do get to experience that on a different level now that I'm, I have to present wines to, to someone. But it is on a different scale. It's, it's a different experience, I guess. Sure. What was the most disappointing wine that you opened that was corked? Oh, so many. <laughs> I just remember now. I guess a 1975 six liter bottle of Chateau Mouton that had a Warhol label and it was $20,000 in our wine list and it was corked. Oh no. I think that was really disappointing. <laughs> There's no guarantee. Yeah, exactly. But I feel like that's the biggest. So you shared a little bit about kind of what brought you here, what your inspiration is, what your background is what you love today, what you're looking forward to in your future. Taking all of these things into account, I think that as we start our careers, there's a much different motivation as there is when we stay in it. So why do you still do it? Because, well, first is the only thing that I've done. It's kind of hard to change your path, right? <laughs> I mean, you've changed your path before. It's hard, right? Sometimes, yeah. I just still like wine too much. And I think it's hard for me to move away for something that I've loved for so many years. The industry is really challenging, especially working for a small distributor in a city that's ruled by a big company. My challenges day to day are, I mean, there's too many, but I still love presenting sick wine to people. And I still love selling wines that I believe in. And I feel like that is the most important thing about my job is that I believe in what I do and I have believed in it for so long you know that's an awesome thing yep. I think especially in sales you know you gotta believe you gotta believe it yeah I mean and, and to be honest it's just I think it's the most important thing when you when you transition from from the floor to to sales it's like you have to choose something that you you love because you have to be surrounded by it every single minute absolutely so we talk a lot about balance and as young single motivated very hardworking people we join this industry, just, you know, go big or go home or hit the ground running or however you want to describe it. What have you learned throughout your career at this stage in your life about how best to find that balance? What do you think gives you just a well-rounded kind of day-to-day -day in your life that helps you feel as though career and wine, as much as you love it, is not your whole life? Correct. Yeah. I feel like I got to sort of like a point not too long ago where I realized that I had made my whole life and my whole personality wine. And at what point am I myself? At what point I'm going to enjoy something different that's not wine and food? I feel like you have to separate yourself from it at a certain point. You can just like make it your whole life. So I don't go out and party anymore. I usually don't drink during the week. I usually try to just, if I'm having wine I enjoy one glass of wine and then I have to stop just because it's not my whole life it's something that I enjoy and I want to keep enjoying for many years coming so I think making that drawing that line that there's other things to me than just wine or restaurants 
I had to come to that realization about five years ago. And I was just like, I need to find something else, you know, that defines me. Yeah, for sure. So what feeds you outside of wine? (laughs) (laughs) My dog. (laughs) Tell me your dog. Tell me the story. Tell me your dog's name. Come on. You got to share all of the details. You're you're a great dog dad. Well, I spent a lot of time with my dog. He's an Italian water dog and his name is Barolo, of course. (laughs) But yeah, he's about three years old and I dedicate my life to him. I love him. Do you think you'll be having any more for children? No, just one. <laughs> just one. He's enough. <laughs> but it does bring yeah. balance because I, I'm able to go outside, enjoy a nice walk, go to the beach, take him places. You know, it's just a, it's an excuse to do something for him that's actually for me. So yeah. And so do you share parenting skills? Yes. <laughs> Um, well, I mostly spend time with my dog in the mornings or during the day, but my boyfriend takes him out for walks in the mornings. We trade every other day. So he walks in one day, I walk in the next. I always walk in at night because he, he, he works usually late. I like to so having a partner, having a partner in this industry is not easy either. It's not easy. No. Like- and that's, and I think that that's, that was also my change from restaurants to, to, to wholesale was I need a life. I, I mean, we, we work, we were working opposite schedules. I was opening restaurants. I mean, I opened, I think since the moment that we got together all the way to uh, when I started with this company, I opened three restaurants in two years and not only three restaurants in town, I got to open restaurants in Singapore and in Vegas and in LA. So traveling and being away for so long and working really long hours and it was taxing. So I needed a more of a settled schedule. Sure. Mm-hmm. So do you feel like you've found that balance today? I think so. Good. I think so. I think like um, anyway, right? <laughs> uh, I think it's I think it's good. I have a really fun life right now. I, I get to cook dinner at home every day. I get to spend time with my dog. Get weekends off. It's nice. Yeah, sounds pretty sweet to me. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to thank you again. I'm just absolutely over the moon thrilled. <laughs> that you agreed to participate on the podcast. I'm so, so, so happy to share your story. And I'm confident that, you know, it's not just special to me, that it will definitely resonate with other people as well. Love you so much. Love you too. And thanks for taking the time because it's Friday night and I know you have dinner to cook. (laughs) Yes. Thanks for listening to the Surviving Hospitality Podcast, an LA consulting firm production. At LA Consulting, we specialize in accounting and human resources for the hospitality industry. Through this podcast, our goal is to inspire and share stories about our challenges and wins in the industry we love. We get real about it, share some laughs, and take a minute to remember why we do it. Surviving Hospitality is hosted by Elisa Lozano, produced by me, Michelle Rodriguez, edited by Mohammed Yusuf, original music by Phil Petrie. On behalf of guests around the world enjoying service at this moment, our deepest gratitude. <laughs>